I want to offer a content warning at the beginning of this episode. While it isn't as energetically draining as the animal mutilation episode, it does get pretty gross when I have to discuss vultures, because vultures are a very necessary but disgusting animal. If you are of the squeamish folk, hint hint mom, please do skip this episode. At 23 weeks pregnant and still suffering with morning slash all day sickness, I, more than anyone, will forgive you. On the calm, clear day of Friday, March 3rd, 1876, in the Mudlick area of Bath County, Kentucky, Elizabeth Moore Crouch, wife of Alan Crouch, was outside of their farmhouse making soap when something peculiar occurred. A, quote, shower of quivering flesh blanketed an area of approximately 50 yards wide and 100 yards long, roughly an acre of land. There were chunks ranging in size from one inch to two inches wide, one inch to three inches long, and half to three quarters of an inch thick. The largest chunk was around three inches square. Elizabeth said the substance that appeared to be meat fell down like snow. Mr. Crouch collected some specimens Friday evening and gave them to Harrison Gill, proprietor of the nearby Olympian Springs Health Resort. By the time Mr. Gill visited the Crouches on Sunday, None of the substance was left on the ground. Only the substance which had fallen on the fence rails remained, as the hogs and chickens had been partaking happily of that which fell on the ground. Mr. Gill said that the substance appeared to be fresh meat. The meat stuck to and stained the fence rails just like fresh meat would. Mr. Crouch said that when he first saw the substance on Friday evening, it looked, quote, more like thin slices of Mississippi catfish than anything else he could compare it to. As rumors circulated and... Boy, did those rumors get interesting. Hundreds of people came to visit the farm. Two local men tasted the substance and said that it was mutton or venison. For you non-farmers and non-hunters, that's sheep or deer. Several people collected samples for posterity, but two men in particular set in motion the widespread scientific analysis that followed. The correspondent for the Louisville Courier-Journal newspaper sent a sample to Professor J. Lawrence Smith, a prominent chemist and microscopist in Louisville, who invented the inverted microscope and is famous enough that he has a Wikipedia page. Mr. Gill collected several samples for scientific analysis. Now, I'm not sure exactly who he sent samples to, but some samples made it all the way to New York City for analysis, and several samples were passed around among prominent scientists and microscopists in Kentucky. The first theory was put forward by J. Lawrence Smith, based on the initial sample sent to him by the Louisville newspaper correspondent. He posited that the substance was the spawn of Batrachian reptiles, in modern lingo that would be frogs, which had been picked up by a whirlwind and posited on the Crouch farm. Witnesses who had seen the substance in the days following the initial incident were extremely skeptical of this theory, and Professor Smith himself changed his mind after analyzing other samples. It appears that the faulty analysis was due to a combination of factors. Firstly, it seems that the samples were not well preserved by the reporter. One was packaged without being preserved at all, and it was so dry when Smith received it that he didn't even bother trying to deal with it. The other had been preserved in liquid, but Smith seems to admit in his later retraction that he didn't put much effort into his analysis. Basically, he cut it open, saw that it was gelatinous, and said, it must be the frog eggs. Unfortunately, like any newspaper article, people see the initial report and completely miss the retraction. The second theory came out of New York City. Leopold Brandeis of Brooklyn wrote in the Sanitarian that the substance was something called Nostoc, 
specifically Nostoc carnium, which he claimed was flesh-colored and tasted like frog legs. He claimed that the Nostoc, a type of cyanobacterium, was carried along by the winds until it fell to the earth in a rainstorm and swelled to chunks due to the moisture. Unfortunately, this ignores the fact that it was a completely clear sky, and the fact that Nostoc looks absolutely nothing like a slab of meat. Thankfully, Brandeis forwarded his samples on to others in the New York area, and better analyses followed. In fact, two histologists, Professor J.W.S. Arnold and Dr. A. Mead Edwards, claimed not only that the samples were of lung tissue, most likely that of a human infant or a horse, which apparently looked the same, but also they said that anyone who thought it was Nostoc was a rookie idiot. Once again, however, more people saw the Nostoc theory than the rebuttal. The scientific community eventually decided that the substance was in fact meat later that year as samples made the rounds. As it turns out, the full range of samples included muscular tissue, cartilaginous tissue, gelatinous fatty tissue, and lung tissue. In particular, Professor Smith, Mr. A.T. Parker, and Dr. L.D. Kastenbein were the ones to conclude that the strange shower was definitely of animal origin. What type of animal was never exactly determined. Alan Crouch thought it resembled catfish. The two hunters thought it tasted like mutton or venison. The histologists thought that the lung tissue resembled that of a horse. Dr. Kastenbein said that when he burned a sample that had not been an alcohol with a Bunsen burner, it smelled distinctly of rancid mutton suet, and that others who looked at samples not preserved in alcohol likewise said it smelled of mutton. Apparently, some even claimed wool was present. Since most of the people agreed upon mutton, I will assume that to be the case, but it's important to note that no farmer ever claimed a specific missing animal, so we cannot say for sure what the sky meat actually was. Once the what had been decided, the how and why became the more interesting questions. One Mr. Joel Sloper wrote in a letter to the editor of the New York Herald that he had once witnessed a whirlwind pick up a deer that he had shot and tear it to shreds, leaving behind sausage-like meat and bones ground into buttons. He felt this likely happened in the case of the Crouch Farm also. To me, this sounds like the kind of story that a hunter would make up to cover up the fact that he didn't actually get the deer. I mean, I love hunters. I am a hunter. But hunters and fishermen are not the most truthful when it comes to what happens in the woods. My grandpa used to tell the story of Uncle Nate back home in Pennsylvania. He was at the bar one night talking a real big game about a deer that he had shot out of season. The guy next to him lets him finish, but then asks, do you know who I am? Uncle Nate says no. The man says, well, I'm the local game warden. Uncle Nate doesn't miss a beat and says, do you know who I am? The man says, no. Uncle Nate says, well, I'm the biggest liar in Susquehanna County. So I say that to say that I don't even think Joel Sloper saw what he says he saw, much less did that happen at the Crouch Farm. My favorite theory, which is not a serious theory at all, but is hilarious, is the meat belt theory. This was published in Domestic Explosives and Other Sixth Column Fancies by William Livingston Allen. The theory goes that if there is an asteroid belt in space that periodically sends meteorites plumbing to Earth, and that the asteroid belt is the remains of an exploded planet, then there must be a meat belt in space made up of the remains of the exploded inhabitants of the exploded planet, and that is what causes it to periodically rain meat, blood, etc. at various locations across the Earth. 
Like I said, it is not a serious theory, but it is hilarious. The most prolific theory, and the one that was decided upon by the scientific community, is the vulture vomit theory. The theory goes that a wake of vultures were feeding upon carrion, then on their way home, one decided he was so full that he needed to disgorge himself. The other vultures then grew sympathetically nauseous and all puked their guts up on the Crouch's farm. I am now going to explain far more about vultures than you ever wanted to know in an effort to convey why I'm skeptical of this theory. If the idea of people taste testing potential vulture vomit didn't gross you out, don't worry, it gets worse. In Kentucky and across the South, there are two types of vultures, the turkey vulture and the black vulture. The turkey vulture is slightly larger with two-toned feathers on the underside of their wings and a reddish bald head that resembles a turkey. The black vulture is slightly smaller, with black feathers on the underside of their wings and a black bald head. Aside from their aesthetic differences, there are behavioral and anatomical differences that will become important in my analysis. The turkey vulture is particularly special in ornithology because it has a sense of smell. The turkey vulture uses that sense of smell to detect their food, so they typically are eating carrion that has started to rot. The black vulture does not have that same sense of smell. They will either use sight to pick out a dying animal and wait around for it to croak, or they will actually soar above the turkey vultures and follow turkey vultures into a feeding. If you look up and see vultures at two different heights in the sky, it's often turkey vultures flying lower and black vultures flying higher, waiting for the turkey vultures to sniff out a meal. In some cases, this relationship can actually be beneficial to a turkey vulture. The turkey vulture has a comparatively weak beak and can have difficulty opening the hide of a large animal if it is freshly dead. The black vulture has a stronger beak, so getting started on a larger meal isn't as difficult. Unfortunately for the turkey vulture, black vultures tend to feed in large groups and can even enter a feeding frenzy. So if there are too many black vultures on a particular feed, the turkey vulture can be left out on a meal they actually found. Many modern analyses I read of the vulture theory based their analysis on the black vulture. Importantly, though, the black vulture was essentially non-existent in Kentucky until about 50 years ago, when it began to push in more heavily from the south. In fact, there's a book called A History of North American Birds that can shed some light on the historic range of the black vulture. It was first published in 1874 by the esteemed naturalist Spencer Baird, who was the first curator of the Smithsonian and founder of the Woods Hole Laboratory. But the version I read was from 1905. In 1905, the book states that the black vulture could not be detected as far north as Norfolk, Virginia, which of course is on the southern coast of Virginia, just below the 37th parallel. The area of the Crouch Farm is right on the edge of the Cumberland Plateau in the northeastern part of Kentucky, almost exactly at the 38th parallel. If the black vulture hadn't even made it to the 37th parallel by 1905, there's almost no way for black vultures to have been in the area of the Crouch Farm in 1876. The area was turkey vulture territory, so that's what we need to base our analysis on. Now, turkey vultures will naturally vomit for essentially four reasons. The first reason is to hack up any bones or indigestible material so that it doesn't back up in their system. These regurgitated pellets look like a weird version of a hairball and are actually used by scientists studying vultures to help determine what their diet consists of. The second reason is to feed their young. This is extremely common in birds and pretty unremarkable behavior. I still think it's gross, but I am also not really a bird person. 
The third reason is where it starts to get super gross. If they are threatened in any way, vultures will projectile vomit partially digested food. This serves the dual purpose of horrifying any predators and also lightening the load of the bird to make a quick escape. Like I said, this regurgitated material is partially digested, so that acid can actually eat away at whatever the vomit lands on. Vultures also will poop on their legs to kill any bacteria that would be lingering from the rotten corpse they just ate, and to cool off in a process called urohydrosis. Between the bodily fluids coming out at both ends, vultures can cause a fair amount of property damage. And the fourth reason that turkey vultures vomit is gluttony. Both the turkey vulture and the California condor are known to eat so much that they can't actually fly. In comparison, black vultures don't typically eat this much because they are eating in large groups, spreading the load across many more stomachs. When the turkey vulture gorges too much, the vulture will puke up the excess to make sure they can lift off and get to safety. Because it happens more quickly after feeding, as opposed to the defensive vomit, the regurgitated material is not quite so noxious, but still not something I would want to put in my mouth. A potential fifth reason for vultures to vomit was suggested in the case of the Kentucky meat shower. The theory was that it was the result of strychnine exposure. At the time, strychnine was used to poison coyotes in particular in an effort to protect their livestock. However, multiple people tasted the meat, and no one described the bitter taste characteristic of strychnine, nor did anyone display any symptoms of strychnine poisoning, so I doubt that strychnine was involved. If there were vomiting vultures, it would be defensive or gluttonous regurgitation. Proof for the vulture theory, in the eyes of the contemporary newspapers, was given by relaying an account out of Columbus, Georgia, from June of 1876. Dick and Ab Curvin were standing in Ab's backyard when meat started falling. They looked up and saw several buzzards circling around 100 feet above them. Unfortunately, none of the Georgia fallen flesh was collected and analyzed, and I found no follow-up pieces on this incident beyond the initial report in the June 11, 1876 copy of the Columbus Daily Inquirer and facsimiles of that report in other newspapers. So we have no idea what the meat looked like. We have no idea how big it was. We have no idea if it was rotting or partially digested. And we have no idea if it was even meat because it was never analyzed. There's nothing to verify that the substances in Georgia and Kentucky were even similar. And the suggestion in the initial report is that this would have been a considerably less amount of fallen substance than we saw in the Kentucky case. With so little information and no scientific corroboration, it's hard to use this as definitive proof of really, well, anything. Instead, we need to look at the specific facts of the Kentucky meat shower incident to confirm the merit of the vulture theory. In the case of the Kentucky meat shower, we have chunks of meat of varying size up to three inches square, which would be an extremely large chunk of meat for a turkey vulture to swallow. It also would be a really large chunk of meat for a turkey vulture to rip off, considering its weak beak, which can't even open up the hide of a freshly dead horse. I can't definitively say that the size of the meat alone excludes the vulture theory. However, I looked at an uncomfortable amount of photos and videos of turkey vultures eating, and I didn't see any chunks that big getting ripped off and swallowed. The meat was also described as fresh was tasted by a few brave souls, and was not described as doing any damage to the Crouch property other than staining the fence rails. Not only would turkey vulture vomit definitely not seem fresh after it went into the extremely acidic environment of their stomachs, 
but also it most likely would not have been fresh to begin with, as turkey vultures use their sense of smell to find their meals, meaning the carrion has already started to rot and decay. Additionally, there were many, many pieces of this vomit over an acre of land. That would require an army of vultures to puke up their guts. But turkey vultures don't roam in large groups like the black vulture. They'll roost in large groups, but feed either independently or in small groups. Having enough turkey vultures eating together to even create this amount of meat refuse would be highly unusual. And finally, the meat would have had to have been regurgitated by vultures that were flying high enough to not be immediately noticed. Both in the case of the defensive vomit and the overeating vomit, vultures regurgitate for the purpose of lightening their load, so that they are able to fly. Once they're up in the air, particularly high enough for them to not be noticed by Elizabeth Crouch or her children, the purpose of them vomiting up a meal would be seemingly moot. Because of all of this, I have a really hard time believing that the Kentucky meat shower was actually caused by vulture vomit. To be honest, I don't know of a mundane explanation for such an odd event, particularly prior to the advent of airplane technology. There is always the possibility of a hoax to be considered. Obviously, if this was the case, Elizabeth Crouch would have had to have been party to the conspiracy, as she claimed to have witnessed the meat falling from the sky. I strongly doubt, however, that she would have acted alone. 1876 is smack dab in the middle of the Long Depression of 1873 to 1879. In addition, eastern Kentucky had just endured a famine in 1875 due to crop failure. According to the papers, people in this area only survived because other areas of the state sent aid. And the area was obviously quite poor still, as evidenced by the jokes in various reports that farmers in the area were putting baskets in the fields hoping to harvest their own miracle meat. Such a waste of meat in such a hard time in such a poor area seems unlikely for a farmer's wife with nothing to gain. If anyone had anything to gain from a publicity hoax, my eye would be on Mr. Harrison Gill, the proprietor of the nearby Olympian Springs Resort. The resort was centered on the supposedly healing springs of the area, typical of 19th century health resorts, but it was beginning to suffer in the post-war period. A boost in publicity certainly could have helped drive traffic to the resort, and Harrison Gill was involved in the distribution of samples to various scientists. I'm not convinced, though. The majority of news articles didn't mention Mr. Gill or the resort. Only one published a statement from him, but it was a reprint of a private letter that he had sent to Captain J.M. Bent along with samples. It doesn't seem that Mr. Gill tried very hard to get publicity in the shower's aftermath. Also, the resort couldn't have been too desperate because it managed to remain open for another 70 years, not closing its doors until the 1940s. It is possible that the Crouches just sought out Mr. Gill simply because he was one of the most prominent citizens of the area. I, of course, cannot completely rule out a hoax 150 years separated from the events in question, but it seems highly unlikely given the economic situation of the time. So, if what we know of our skies can't fully explain the phenomenon witnessed, perhaps we need to adjust our paradigm. In another moment of synchronicity, I finally sat down to read some back issues of The Observer, who you should definitely check out. I subscribe to the free physical copy because I'm internally 80 years old, but they are active on Substack as well. In this particular issue, there was an analysis of the jean jacket sky creature in the Jordan Peele movie Nope. I haven't seen the movie, both because I don't watch scary movies and because I didn't even know it was a movie. But based on the article, 
The aesthetic of the creature reminds me a lot of the creature from the movie Evolution, post-napalm, pre-head and shoulders, but flying. Either way, the article highlighted the work of Charles Fort, John Besser, and Trevor J. Constable, among others, for their work on the sky critter slash living UFO hypothesis. For those who aren't aware, Charles Fort essentially created the modern field of researching weird phenomenon, a field which is often called Fortiana in his honor. Fort got his start collecting weird newspaper clippings at the New York Public Library in the early 1900s and went on to publish four books of these strange stories. To my delight, Fort did actually comment on the Kentucky meat shower. Unfortunately, he doesn't seem to be aware of the later scientific analyses confirming the fallen substance was meat, and instead he uses Brandis's Nostock theory. Fort thus compares the Kentucky meat shower to other instances of gelatinous substances falling from the sky and speculates about the potential of creatures in the sky. He does go on to suggest that the snowflake-like manner in which the meat fell was due to pressure, and he highlights that a similar incident occurred just nine days later in London. But I would have loved to have known his impression based on the substance being meat and not Nostock. My presumption is that he missed the later analyses because the story moved out of the newspapers and into the scientific journals. It's a missed opportunity, but c'est la vie. In Trevor J. Constable's work on living UFOs, or sky critters, he highlights a really interesting experience by Don Wood Jr. This event happened in 1925, but was not published until 1959, when Don wrote a letter that was published in Ray Palmer's Flying Saucers magazine in October of that year. The letter is as follows. I must write you of what happened to me in 1925, which I think solves most of these UFO reports. I have never told this to anyone, but can get signed affidavits if needed. Four of us were flying old jetties, Ox 5 motors, over the Nevada desert. One plane was a two-seater, the one I was in. We landed on Flat Mesa near Battle Mountain, Nevada. The mesa is about 5,000 square feet and the walls are too steep to climb, unless a lot of work is done. We wanted to see what was on top of this flat place. We landed at 1 p.m. While walking about on the top of this place, we noticed something coming in for a landing. It was about eight feet across and was round and flat like a saucer. The undersides were a reddish color. It skidded to a stop about 30 feet away. The next you won't believe, and I don't care, but it's the truth. We walked up to the thing and it was some animal like we never saw before. It was hurt, and as it breathed, the top would rise and fall, making a half-foot hole all around it like a clam opening and closing. Quite a hunk had been chewed out of one side of this rim, and a sort of metal-looking froth issued. When it saw us, it breathed frantically and rose up only a few inches, only to fall back to earth again. It was moist and glistened on the top side. We could see no eyes or legs. After a 20-minute rest, it started pulsating once more. We stayed 10 feet away. And so help me, the thing grew as bright as all get-out, except where it was hurt. It had a mica-like shell body. It tried to rise up again, but sank back again. Then we saw a large, round shadow fall upon us. We looked up and ran. Coming in was a much larger animal, 30 feet across. It paid no attention to us, but settled itself over the small one. Four sucker-like tongues settled over the little one, and the big one got so dazzling bright you couldn't look at it. Both rose straight up and were out of sight in a second. They must have been traveling at a thousand miles an hour to get so high so fast. 
When we walked over, there was an awful stench, and the frothy stuff the little one had bled looked like fine aluminum wire. There was more frothy, wiry stuff in a 30-foot circle where the big one had breathed. This stuff finally melted in the sun, and we took off. So help me, this was an animal. I have never told this before, as we knew no one would believe us. I only write now because this animal would be one big 30-foot light if seen at night. I don't expect belief, but I simply had to write. Don't use my name, I am still flying. But write if you want more information. So how about them apples? Not only is this account fascinating, because I cannot see anyone having the imagination to make this up, but also it lends credibility that he didn't want his name attached to such a wild tale for fear of it impacting his career. Even if you're still skeptical of this account, though, let's go through the thought exercise accepting it as fact. A 30-foot saucer-shaped creature that travels straight up faster than anything we have invented, that glows under its own power, that lifts its food off the ground in a manner that could seem like levitation, and that has an exterior shell and even saliva that has a metallic appearance. On top of that, other accounts highlighted by Trevor J. Constable show an ability to fuzz in and out of the visible light spectrum and even create clouds to hide behind. Genuinely, this could explain so many UFO sightings. I still think a large contingent of particularly modern UFO sightings are secret military technology, but this idea of interdimensional sky critters is a revolutionary hypothesis that makes much more sense to me than little green men from a star millions of light years away with the technological potential to do whatever they want, whenever they want, and all they want to do is eat some cows and shine some pretty lights in the sky. If we consider the possibility of sky critters as they might pertain to the Kentucky meat shower, I think the potential is obvious. An invisible predator picks up a sheep for a quick meal and ends up spilling a bit of meat as it chews. I mean, if a 30-foot critter can cannibalize an 8-foot critter, what is an 8-foot critter eating on? Livestock would be a sensible choice. And if we imagine an 8-foot critter, or smaller, as a baby or a toddler, then it makes sense that food would be spilled. If you don't have kids, just trust me that a one-year-old often gets more food on their face than in their mouth. As we wrap up, I honestly, I don't know what happened on the Crouch Farm in 1876, but I don't think it was vulture vomit, I don't think it was a hoax, and I'm still not completely convinced of the existence of sky critters. What do you think? <laughs>